look at the entire uh, chapter this, this morning, but we're just going to read the first five verses together just to kind of stoke our fires for this topic of prayer this morning. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Today, we are marking yet another transition, in some sense, in our study in John. And we're going to be looking at Jesus' high priestly prayer together. And we're going to be talking about this topic of prayer. And here's the thought that has been ruminating around my brain for the last couple of months, since the first of the year, thinking about what God and how God would want us to lead forward and prepare for future mission and ministry here at Grace Church. And, and here is the thought that has literally been sitting in the back of my brain waiting for John 17. A prayerless church is a missionless church. A prayerless church is a missionless church. Let that sit on you just for a moment. And let me just kindly remind you that as we hear very um, pointed ideas like that, um, it's not meant to be shock jock ideas, right? It's not meant to be elicit a certain kind of guilt or emotion in the people present this morning or those who might listen online. But it is meant to stoke a deep mindfulness in our lives about what it takes for it takes for a church to be serious about our mission as a church. And one of those topics, one of those areas that is absolutely necessary for the church is the role of prayer, both as individuals in our daily piety, as well as our corporate piety, our corporate gatherings. We've been really trying to emphasize this quite a lot since the beginning of the year and reinforcing more energy, if you will, in our midweek prayers that we happen twice a month. We'll have another one in the first week of April. But we also wanted to give a little resource that I wanted to highlight for you. It's out here on the little table out in the hallway. Got about 30 copies up, so we'd ask for only one copy per family. And if we need to get more, we will. But it's a really short little read, very easy little read. You could probably read it in a couple of hours, maybe, or less. 35 pages. Um, most of us can handle that, yeah. And in a small little book, it's called Enjoy Your Prayer Life by Michael Reeves. And I read this little book about... I want to know a year or two back, and uh, it, it really stoked the fire of prayer in my life. And though at the same time, I would say that there's plenty of room for growth in prayer in my life. And I would imagine I'm not alone in that if I'm sitting in this room. So what does prayer have to do with the Christian life? What does prayer have to do with the mission of the church? Well, that's what, what I hope we'll see as we study this text this morning. Um, because sadly to say, what I think happens in my life and and maybe you would concur with this, is that sometimes prayer gets kind of diminished to the cellar of our lives, right? Just kind of in that background, it's kind of the cellar of our spiritual activities as God's people. And, and again, I don't say that out of any combination of anyone in this room. I say that really pointing the finger back at me and saying that this has oftentimes been the reality that I've experienced in my life. And, and so I only say that to you because I want you to join with me to, to see where this, this discipline that we believe God has invited us into as we read scripture is something that is taken more advantage of by God's people. So today's text, here's what we're going to see is we're going to see this substantial prayer, the most substantial prayer recorded in the Bible. Um, and it's prayed by our God. Amen. Now let that one just sit on you for a minute. Our God, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, prayed the most substantial prayer in the Bible, and that this prayer is strategically located in our study in John, 
as a kind of a transition point, if you will, between this farewell, farewell discourse that he's been preparing his disciples for, for ministry post his resurrection, post his ascension, with the work of the Spirit, and he's praying it right at this moment. Why? Well, we're going to find that out this morning. Um, and, and, and I love the fact that what we see here is God praying. That does not say what many people might be tempted to say, that somehow or another there's a weakness to God or somehow or another there's a, there's a, a humanness to God in, 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 a, in, a, in the same way that you and I are human, of course. But there's something about the fact that there's God in His grace has given us this pattern of prayer. And we've seen it in other places, right? The Lord's Prayer. We've seen this in His prayer Gethsemane, which we'll touch on uh, briefly this morning. Um, but what we see as He is praying is the richness of who the Father is, the greatness of who the Son is, the, the reality of who we are, and the clarity of what the church's mission is. That's what we see in all these things, right? The greatness of who God is, the greatness of the Son, the reality of who we are as sinners broken and, and, and rebellion against God in the fall, and the reality of what it means to be the church on mission until Jesus returns. So here's a strong statement alert. Gave you already one, I'll give you a second one. How about that? It is entirely impossible. It is entirely impossible. I believe this is all my heart. It's entirely impossible to study this text, the high priestly prayer this morning, and receive the truth of this text as it stands to us, as God's gift to us, and remain unconcerned about the role of prayer in our personal life, our personal piety, as well as our congregational piety, our congregational, if you will, congregational uh, 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 rhythms. And so the thought that we're going to really unpack this morning is this. It's simple but straightforward. Because our God prays, because our God, because our Savior prays, the church should attend to the necessity of prayer as well so that God's glory and God's mission is known on the earth. Amen? Let me say that again. Because our God, because the Son of God prays, we too should attend to the necessity of prayer in our lives and as a congregation so that the glory of God and the mission of God is known on the earth. Now let's look at the context here just briefly. We're going to jump in and we're going to look at this text from a very high level this morning. First, we want to see, we need to understand, as we've already kind of touched on, the importance of this prayer in the larger context of Jesus' farewell discourse. And it just simply needs to know why this prayer is where it is. And in the larger context of this prayer, of course, it's found as an extension of Jesus' farewell discourse. We've already been kind of unpacking this. This is kind of the end of it, if you will. And, and we've been studying now in chapters 14 through 16. Now we get into chapter 17. And, and additionally, it stands as kind of a, a transition between the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry and private ministry on earth, and now that hour we've been talking about a lot, right? That hour that Jesus has been appointed to. This prayer is significant. It stands right between Jesus' ministry, both public and private, and that hour that he's been appointed to come. To die, to raise from the grave, and to secure eternal life for those whom he has given it to. That's the first thing we need to know about the context of this thing. The second thing we want to know is how it understands in the larger context of the Gospel of John, not just in this more narrow sense. Um, because one of the things that we must understand in this, uh, about John's Gospel is that it's very different from the other three Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to be more written um, for particular people groups, like Matthew's a little bit more... Jewish, it feels like. Uh, uh, Luke is a little bit more Gentile and so on and so forth. So there's a, there's a particular way in which those, by God's grace, are given. And they're also a bit more focused on the chronology of Jesus' life, where John's is not at all. John was more of a commissioned, if you will, uh, gospel, we know. It was the last gospel written in, G in John's life. Uh, John was the, the, the apostle that lived the longest. And he was given or asked to give a, an account, a gospel of his own. But it was different in the sense of it being more of a theological and mission manifesto to the church. That is, it's written and designed, if you've, as we've already seen in our study, that it's written and designed around theological ideas and symbols that were coming to life and who Christ is to show the church where their hope is. Because the church is being 
beaten and battered by the culture in which it's in. So it's a very different gospel. So in one sense, this prayer today is a kind of a summary of all that John's been talking about. It's a summary that Jesus came as the incarnate Son of God in obedience to the Father. It's a summary of Jesus is the revelation of God, the Son who has come into the world to save sinners. It's a summary of Jesus who has come into the world to collect the people God has chosen for him. It's a summary that this people, the church, you and I today have one mission in the world, and that is to reveal this God to the world, to show the world this God. It is a summary of the people who is unified only in the Godhead of the, and through the work of Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. And it's a summary of the final destiny as a church that one day we will be in the presence of the father and son forever and ever when jesus returns and that's important to note on this prayer because again as i noted a second ago the church faced outside threats and inside threats the outside threats were pretty easy to figure out they had increased persecution from the religious center of the jewish life they also had increased persecution from the 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 greco-roman world and how their beliefs rubbed up against their ideals and their philosophies and their culture very similar to what we see today but also they had inside threats Sometimes we don't think about the inside threats as much as we should as a church, but we have tons of inside threats. And the inside threats that they faced or these kind of pseudo-Christian ideas that tend to kind of co-opt the gospel and get us off of the focus, and this is what we call Gnosticism. And Gnostics would get into the church and they would say, they would try to infiltrate and say all this, this, all this special knowledge we're supposed to have as God's people. And therefore, it would get the church off track from the centrality of the revealed word, the centrality of the revealed son, the centrality of the revealed work of God through the son. I hope that you can see that that's incredibly relevant to us today. Because that very same thing has crept into the church today. I think very much in the, in the American church. And so that's why we study this text this morning. That's why we need to pay really clear attention to the the, the substance of this prayer. And most importantly, at the end, we'll talk about why prayer still needs to happen among God's people. Okay, so we're going to have this thing, look at this thing through three main questions, and then we'll sum it up at the very end. To whom did Jesus pray? We're going to ask that question to for whom did Jesus pray? And what did Jesus pray? So let me say it again. To whom does Jesus pray in this prayer? For whom does Jesus pray in this prayer? And what does Jesus pray for in this prayer? And then at the end, we'll wrap it up with why does Jesus pray? Okay? And that'll be a kind of our conclusion. You'll know we're getting there. This will help you out, by the way. You'll know I'm going to land a plane when we get to the why, right? Um, I know some of you guys are really eager to that most Sundays. But so then to whom does Jesus pray? It's very clear who Jesus is praying to. Who's Jesus praying to? To the Father. Amen? It's right there in verse 1. When Jesus spoke these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. This prayer highlights so many wonderful things about the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, particularly the Father, Son. And I think we just want to take notice of them, of this, this, this intercommunion between the members of the Godhead. Um, and here's a couple of them that I just want to make us make sure that we pay attention to within this prayer. We're going to kind of skip around this, this passage all morning. First, that Jesus' primary goal in the prayer, the primary goal of Jesus is to bring glory to the Father. Amen. Let me just make sure we're all clear about this. That's the purpose of salvation. As wonderful it is that we get to, win, we get to experience the benefits of our salvation. All right? Go with me here. The purpose of salvation is that God gets the glory because God would save unworthy sinners from hell. This is the purpose, and this is why Jesus, and he says it very clear, glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify you. And, and the second thing we see here in terms of this wonderful communion between Father and Son is that Jesus' work that he had been given to do by the Father before him um, uh, uh, and it has begun and has been done here, right? And what drives Jesus' obedience to his Father is, is his work embodies for mankind what it means to be consumed by the glory of God. So what he is doing in this moment is not only glorify God in himself, but he's calling all of us who believe to make that 
our primary aim. He wants nothing else in this work. That those who would hear and see and believe all that he is and what he has been sent to do would see the Father and see his glory. And that's amazing that the Son is consumed with the Father's glory, especially after what we see in verse 5. And now glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So the very God himself who deserves glory is worried and more concerned with that you and I would be consumed with the glory of God and glory of the Father. Isn't that beautiful? That this intercommunion between the Father and Son, that they're so delighted in one another's glory. And that's what the Father does with him, right? When Jesus is baptized, the Spirit falls and he says, this is my Son. And what does he do? He's glorifying his son in whom I'm well pleased. Amen. Or when they're out there at the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter and John think they're seeing something and they see, you know, they see Moses and they see Elijah and they say, hey, let's go build more places for the, to worship all three of these guys. And God comes in very clearly. Father speaks very clearly in that moment. He goes, I, I'll, I'll quit. I will not ad lib here. This is my son. Amen. Listen to him. Moses points to him. Elijah points to him. This is about the son right now. This is what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do. They, ex- they live. They find their, their, their joy, if you will, in, t- in, in terms of their intercommunion by bringing one another glory. And the purpose of this work that he sent his son to this, this covenant, if you will, between the Father and Son to go and save people is twofold, that they may grant eternal life to undeserving sinners. That's what he says here, that, they, that I might... Glorify you since you have given him authority over our flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This says there in verse 2. That's the first purpose of the work of redemption. And therefore, the first purpose, one of the main purposes of why we pray. And second, that it works, this work demonstrates an, uh, the unrivaled glory, as we've already noted, of God to the world. And it condemns the world in their unbelief. Do you understand that there's a twofold purpose of the gospel? To save sinners? And to condemn, un, to, con, to, to condemn sinners, to condemn people who do not believe, to show them the foolishness of their lack of belief. That God, the Son, would do that. See, Jesus has this intimate relationship with the Father, but it's not a casual relationship. This relationship with Jesus and, his, and, the, and the Father is one that Jesus takes good, serious notice of. And we see this in verse 11 and verse 25, that he would call him Holy Father there in verse 11. I'll read it for you. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me so that they may be one, even as we are one. So Jesus is is concerned to make sure that we give the proper credit to God's holiness, the Father's holiness, and that you and I would take notice of that's the way in which we relate to God too, that we never have a casual relationship with God. And God does not have a casual relationship with your sin and my sin. He does not have a casual relationship with our worship. He does not have a casual relationship with our relationship to the church. This is not how God functions. It's not how God works. And in verse 25, he says, and righteous father there, righteous father. Um, and, and that's important, too, because, again, this is the father who has a standard of righteousness. Oh, righteous father, it says, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me, meaning the people God came to save. And I have made them known, I have made known to them your name. It's important that the world knows that we worship a righteous God. A righteous God is the one who has a standard. And he will not relent on that standard. He cannot relent on that standard. That would be outside of his character to relent on his own holy standard. Praise God, he meets that standard in his son, which we'll talk about here briefly in a few minutes, but it's just something worth noting right now. It's important to Jesus that his people know the true nature and character of the God of their salvation. What he does, what God does is always holy. What God does is always righteous in every way. And that's a message our world really needs right now. 
Not in a condemning way from our part. Like that, that does its own work on itself. But our world needs to know that God creates for reasons and purposes. You and I may not understand, but we will never find our ultimate purpose, our own satisfaction, our own meaning and identity apart from a holy and righteous God. So it highlights this intercommunion of the Father, Son, and how they delight in, in showing the glory off of, of one another. But it also highlights the uniqueness of this God, because that's also important too, that this eternal life is found in one God. That's what he says there, right? One God, verse 3, says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's, there's one God. The God of the Christian faith is, a, is the God who is unique among the gods worshipped on the face of the earth. And the reason why he is real, and the reason why he is unique is because he's actually real. That's important, right? We're capable of creating all kinds of gods in our brain, in our mind, in our heart. But he is real. Not only that, he has made himself known, unlike the other gods that, the world, that we see across the world and the other religions, faiths. He acts in human history, unlike the other gods in other faiths across the world. All others, all other gods, whether it's a religious faith, a, a, a specific religious faith, or just one that we just seem to kind of live in this syncretistic society where we just kind of pick and choose what we believe all the time now, and I just make this God in my own image. Um, I'm a big Office fan, and if you are, you know there's a scene in there where Michael Scott's trying to say, trying to figure out how to, he wants to make a God in his own image, and he starts to talk about all these animals in which he wants God to be like. That is exactly what mankind's been doing since the garden. And I like Michael Scott. But this is what we do. We are capable of creating an amalgamation and a horrific a picture of who God is in our human imagination. And none of it reflects the goodness and glory of God, the one true living God. And Romans 18, I mean, Romans 1 verse 18 just gives us the picture of exactly what's going on. In case you haven't read it lately, let's just read a couple of verses of this. I could read this forever. I read a long text here, but I'm just going to read a few verses. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And what is that? Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God. So again, God's a known God. He's a God who's revealed himself. is plain to them. So we, not only do we not know God, but we actually hide ourselves from the things God makes known about himself. That's the nature of human sinfulness because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Coming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God of the immortal uh, uh, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. So as funny as that little scene is in our office, it is one of the most horrific things because ultimately at the end of the day, it tells you the exact position of the human heart. That we are bent on creating God in our own image. And so when we read this prayer, when we read this prayer, you know what I've done here? I have now went to my, here we go, off my notes here. When we do this, we are creating a God in our own image, and we are stepping aside from the uniqueness of our God. Our God cannot just be uh, washed up as our world would like to in terms of some wonderful like, thing that we do in terms of just saying, well, your God's your God, your God's my God. And you know what? We're all just kind of feeling around in the dark room. And so you've got your perspective and I've got my perspective. But at the end of the day, we're all blind men and women seeking after God. And we never know who God is unless God in his grace reveals himself to us. And that is a grace. And friends... This morning, no matter how hard it is for us to live in a world that hates the things of God, we have the assurance that
that we have a God who's made himself known to us. So that's who Jesus prays to. But who does Jesus pray for? For whom does Jesus pray? Well, there's a few things here. First of all, let's just say it from the very beginning, he prays for himself. Well, isn't that novel? Jesus prays for himself? That seems kind of odd to us, but he says, I pray for my glory. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him the authority over all flesh. What is Jesus doing here? Well, he's praying for himself. He's praying that his glory be known. He prays that the father, his father uh, would sustain him through the task that lies before him. This is what we see in the prayer of Gethsemane. You know, he says, Father, if it be, if it be your will, pass this, this, let this cup pass for me. What's Jesus doing in that prayer? Well, he's, he's not asking to be released from his, 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 uh, his covenant with the Father. That would be really a far and really terrible reading of that text. But what Jesus is praying for is that the love he has for his Father and the obedience that he has, he, he, he is, he is, the links of his obedience would, would be such that even in this very hour in which the gospel would become so clear to the world that there would still be people who are so darkened in their sin that their eyes would be opened. Jesus loves the world. But he loves his elect. But he still loves the world. And he still wants the world to see what they do not see. Indeed, they cannot see. Now, I mentioned this point of Jesus praying for himself for another reason. Because oftentimes, we can, Christians, can adopt this kind of very pious um, martyrdom, if you will. That's the best way I can think of it. Um, in our spiritual lives, that, that, that basically we don't need to pray for our own needs. We don't need to go to God for our own things. And that's just really spiritually unhealthy. And I'm not talking about praying for, you know, you, you know just every little you know, fleeting thing, although I think the Lord is kind enough to hear even those things. But that God wants us to come to him. He even invites us to come to him and to lay our burden on his shoulders. He is strong for us. I, frankly, have had this tendency in my life to not let my needs be known and not to, and even with my own God. Why? Because there's got to be better things to pray for. I got to be more selfless than that, right? But no, Jesus prays for his own glory to be known. He prays that the work that they are doing, would, would, that he would have the strength to get through this time and that God himself and his love would sustain him through this because he's still in touch with his own human side at that moment, even though he was never in danger, if you will, of failing. It's okay to pray for yourself. It's okay to let our needs be known. The Christian life is very much a sacrificial life. And here's the thing, though. But if the Son of God, pay, who paid the ultimate price, the ultimate sacrifice, if he cries out to his Father in his darkest hour of life, should we not as well? Amen. Should we not have that same kind of posture in our life, that neediness for our Father? So he prays for himself, but he also prays for specifically those whom God had gave him. We see this in verse 2. Let's again remind ourselves of what it is, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. There's a specific people that God has given to his son to save. Verse 6, in case you think that's just a passing idea, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have gave me out of the world. Verse 9, I am praying for them, i.e., the people you've given me out of the world, and I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Wow. Verse 11, and the world, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Who is he keeping in the name? Those whom he has given to his son. All this are antecedents to this. Verse 17. Um, let me try to find it here. 
sanctify them in the truth. Who's them? Your word is truth. Them is the people God has given out the word. Of course, 24, near the end of the chapter, he says, Father, I desire that they also, they whom you've given out of the word, have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh my gosh, people. Look, I, look, 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 let's just go ahead and deal with the, the elephant in the room here just for a moment. All right, dealing with the reality of this doctrine of election, although the word election doesn't exist in this particular passage, it's undeniable that it's here. That God himself has a people he is saving. And the reason why that's so wonderful is, is because you're saved. <laughs> and you don't deserve to be saved. And that God would save you in spite of your sin. And that God would not only save you, but he's going to make sure you get all the way where you're supposed to go. That's a beautiful thing. And so nearly, of course, he's talking about these disciples for whom Jesus had called to follow him early out through his ministry. But broadly, this doesn't this not also extend to all who believe in the future times in this moment. I'll give you another verse here in case, we, in case you're unconvinced. Verse 20. It says uh, here, let me go back here, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, these, meaning the people that you have given me are for these, the disciples who are with me now, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, and they may also be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. The Father is pleased to give his son a people. And Jesus is praying for those people. And we'll talk about all the things he prays for them here in just a moment. But the reason why this is so important for us right now is that all those people who will believe, that includes you and me. So if you want to know why prayer matters and you want to know the effective power of prayer, think about the fact that Jesus prayed for you right before his last hour. And that was so powerful that you're sitting in this room right now Amen. as his people. And I don't know, if you don't have joy here in that, there is nothing that can bring you joy. That the Son of God prayed for you all those many centuries ago, and now you sit in this room, you hear the word of God, and your life has been changed. No prayer has ever reverberated throughout history more than this prayer. Not one. It's amazing. Absolutely phenomenal. Jesus died for sinners so that their unrighteousness and their unholiness would be atoned for and that, this righteous, and that his righteousness would be applied to them and that that would secure throughout eternity a people for his, own, his, God, his father's own pleasure. You exist by the work of the son for the pleasure of the father. Let that one sit on you for a minute. That's what we exist for in this room. We can be wrapped up in a whole lot of other secondary issues, third-level issues, but that, my friend, is worthy of all of our attention for the rest of our lives as long as Jesus tarries. That Jesus came in the obedience to the Father to save a people that the Father had given him so that you and I would be a pleasure to God because in that we show forth the glory of God's saving work to the world. That's the message of the gospel. Your very presence here this morning, it could quite very be the most evangelistic thing you could do all week. Because it shows the world how great our God is. It's amazing. But let's be clear, because we touched on it a minute ago, who Jesus doesn't pray for. And this is not a happy thing. And it's a deeply offensive thing to most people in the world. But he does not. He says it very clearly there in verse, seven, uh, in verse uh, 9. I am not praying for the world. Oh, wow. Did, you just, did, did, did he just say that? Could there be any other idea in the world that's more offensive to the world? I don't know that there is. Because we live in a world, here's what we live in. We live in a world, I'm going to use this big word called egalitarian. Egalitarian means we basically have flattened all distinctions. 
Okay, that's the easiest way to think about it. We flatten all distinctions. There's no difference between a man and a woman. There's no difference, difference between uh, black and white. There's no difference between, um, there's no, well, and we, we're not, there's no difference between rich and poor. There's no difference between anything. There's no difference between one sin and another sin. There's a difference between God and ourselves. That's the ultimate thing. So how dare you tell me God doesn't love people the same way that he loves his church? Because Jesus said so. That's tough. It's so hard to hear. I don't like that myself. It's hard. He loves his people. He loves the world. The Bible says very clearly he loves the world. But God loves in different ways. He does. And to say that he doesn't is to not read this passage with an open heart. See, God doesn't judge people to be saved based on their own merit. He judges it on the merit of his son. Amen? But that doesn't mean that God himself doesn't draw distinctions among humanity. He doesn't say that their sin is sin, and he doesn't call sin sin. See, our world thinks that there's just no, there's nothing wrong. Like, we can just stand before God, and God doesn't look at us, and he just, well, he just kind of blindly looks away from our sin as if our sin's not serious to him. And that's just not true. It's just not true. It's not, you can't read the Bible in, in that. And, I, and listen, I, I, I personally get no pleasure from even saying this. I'm just being human with you. Like, this makes me uncomfortable. And I've been following Jesus a long time, and I delight in the work that his son for me. But what it should do for us, when we read these words, is it should motivate us to move out and to make Jesus known to everyone we meet. Because we dare not want it to be said that someone did not come to Christ because we left our, we were too shy, too embarrassed, too ashamed, too afraid to share Jesus with them. I don't want that to be said of me. I don't. And so, yes, I don't want to backtrack off of this because this is a really, really hard point that we need to wrestle with. And I, and I don't want to sit on it longer than I should. But we don't get to judge God. I mean, Jesus, Paul says it in John, in, in Romans chapter 9, when people say, well, then is God unjust for saving some from condemnation and others for not? <sighs> That's hard, right? It's hard. My human side of me, that, I recoil against that. I mean, just, if I'm just being honest with you, I do. But then Paul says, who are you, O man? Who are you, O pot, to tell the potter how he makes the pot? Pastor's paraphrase there. So then what did Jesus pray for for his people? Well, he prays several things here in this passage that I think are worth us noting. One is, and we've already noted it, but I'm going to say it again. Um, He prays that the Son would be glorified so that the Father may be glorified. Now, it would be an error to think when we read that passage that somehow or another Jesus is praying that the whole project of redemption would not fail. Like somehow or another there was a thought in Jesus' brain when he says, glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify the Father, that somehow or another in this he's kind of afraid that maybe this thing may not finish its way. Because sometimes I've heard people actually interpret this passage that way. I don't know how they get there, but but I've heard it. That's not what's happening here. Jesus was never in danger. The, 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 The project of redemption, the covenant of redemption was never in danger, ever, ever. But rather what Jesus is praying is that his obedience would be seen by the world, as we've already noted. And even the heart of God at this point in the story of human rebellion desires that all would see the glory of God and repent and trust him. Amen. That even though Jesus doesn't pray for the world, let's also be understand that God's heart is still very much that the world would see him. Amen. Because that's the only way there's going to be rescue. 
Even if men and their women who are in hardness, in the most hardness of sin, that should be our posture to the world. If someone spits in your face, it should not be us returning the favor. Our, we should shed tears for those people because they are so darkened in their sin, as we saw in Romans 1. And we should want, like Jesus, that all the world would see the glory of God. All the world would see the saving work of God through the Son. But he also prays that the church would be protected. We saw this in verse 11. I am not, uh, verse 11, I am praying for them, and I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, all are mine. I'm sorry, that was verse 9. Verse 11, I'm sorry, I've jumped too early. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as you, we are one. So he's praying for protection. He's praying for protection. Verse 15 says uh, a similar idea. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Oh, well, yeah, they're examining our prayers. Like, God, would you just take me out of these circumstances? Nope, nope, nope. Jesus is not praying that you and I would just be taken out of our circumstances. Trust me, I prayed that prayer. I'm sure you have too. No, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus said to Peter, you know, when he said, who do you, they say that I am? And Peter says, who do you say? He says to Peter, who do you say I am? He says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. And what does he say right after that? Because sometimes we don't take notice of it. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So this is the, this is the nature of Jesus' prayer for his church, that we would be protected in the midst of these difficult trials that we face. Friends, the world is a dangerous place for Christians. Some of you guys know this more than others. We've got several former missionaries in this room. And you know, like one wrong move, and it can be dangerous for you. You've known missionaries. We've had people in this room who've had to face very dangerous and tenuous situations. But the, the danger runs the gamut of that martyrdom kind of mentality to the materialism side for the Christian. See, it's not just dangerous for the people who go on the front lines, which is, of course, they are, right? There is, um, you know, we, martyrdom is a real reality. And, and, and I heard someone say this week, it was really helpful to me. A lot of times in the Christian global north, we tend to frame what it means to be a Christian by we want to, how to live for Christ. But when you look at the global south or the global anywhere but the global west, they tend to frame it in, how do I die for Christ. Anyone who's been missionary field knows this, right? You, you, like you don't, they don't think the same way we in Westerners do. How do we live for Christ versus how we die for Christ? Now, that's not to presume that what we're doing is that, that we're just basically saying throw everything, caution to the wind, and therefore our lives don't matter, and, and that, that we just put our lives at risk every second of every day and every time. No, no, no one in this room who's ever been to mission field has done that deliberately that I know of. <laughs> but the reality is, that is a danger for Christians. But equally so, I'm going to use the word materialism to be a very broad idea. Materialism also on the other end of the spectrum is a danger for us. Because it's a deep threat for us. When we as Christians get so concerned with our, you know, how, how our lives and our daily lives are affected by the circumstances in which we live. How our pocketbooks and our bank accounts and our housing and our clothing. And, and, and again, these are not bad things to be concerned with. But, but if we're not careful, they can help, they can shade us from seeing the costliness of the Christian mission. That, that really you and I in this morning, we need to think about the costliness of following Jesus this morning from both a time perspective, like, like our lives are to be given to the call Christ. So there might be things in our lives that we need to go, no, that does not serve the kingdom of God. So therefore, I must, I must reevaluate what that is. Our money needs to also be a part of that conversation. Our family needs to be a part of that conversation. Our vocations need to be a part of that, that conversation. Our politics and our social identity needs to be a part of that conversation. And yes, our moral identity needs to be a part of that conversation. 
Christians should pursue holiness. We'll talk about that here in the second point. He prayed for them to be sanctified there in verse 17. To be sanctified is to be set apart, to be made holy. And in this process of sanctification is not fun. I'm not, like, it's just not. It's painful. It, 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 it comes with lots of difficult seasons of life. It means we must, with the, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, seek to be, with God's help, transformed lives. And there are going to be parts of our life that's just going to be hard to see change in. Again, this speaks to the notion that seems to be prevalent in the church today that our holiness doesn't matter. That's what I was trying to get at earlier. But our holiness does matter. Like, you have that idea that just knowing God's love is enough. Well, yes, it's enough. But we know God's love as we know God's truth. And we don't know God's truth. If we don't know God's truth, then we don't know God's love. And if we don't know God's love, then we are not understanding all of the pattern in which we are been set apart to be made holy for Him. There, I heard someone say, again, I read this somewhere, I'm not sure where, uh, recently, that there's no true experience of God's love without God's truth, and there's no true understanding of God's truth without God's love. In other words, the point is clear. Holiness, and this is what he was trying to get at, holiness is the intersection between God's love and God's truth. That, that if we want to know God's love to its fullest extent experientially through God's truth, we've got to understand the intersection of those two things is God's process of sanctifying us and being made holy. And that's something that Jesus is praying for for you. He's praying for your protection, but he's also praying for you to be changed. Progressively, yes. Sometimes slowly, sometimes faster. It just depends on the person. Uh, don't be, get called guard by that, but that is what we're called to do. He prays that we be unified, verse 21, and that they would be unified like you and I are unified, he says. And so what qualifies as unity? I'll say this quickly, and then we'll move into the last point. What qualifies as unity? Well, if you'd hear many, our unity is nothing more than sentimentality. Just don't rock the ship too much. Don't be that guy. Don't be the jerk. Don't be divisive. But the Christian life is in many ways a divisive reality. It does divide the the bone from the marrow. It does. And there is some reality to that in our lives. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, that we are, uh, we got freedom to just be the guy who just wants to constantly bully people and, and, and badger people with things. No, we don't want to fall into that kind of dismissive, rude, mean, uh, cancel culture type things that, that sometimes fall into our world. That's not what we're suggesting. But rather, unity, as Jesus says it here, is that unity that, ha- that he has in mind is this unified message of the truth found in the Bible and that we have, he says, that we have unity with, we cannot have unity without the word of God. We don't, we're not talking about uniformity, that we all just look alike and act alike like little drones, but unity that is found in three main ideas that is just all the way through the scriptures. One, Our God's a holy God. Sovereign God. Two, we are sinners in desperate need of restoration and help. And three, Jesus is the only means for that. If that is the center of our unity, then the church will remain strong until the end. So let's land a plane. How then... So we've looked at who Jesus prays to. We've looked who Jesus prayed for and what Jesus prayed for. So why does Jesus pray and why should we pray? Well, it shows us how we should pray. That we pray to God. Not a distant God, but a, a near God, a God who hears our prayers, a God who welcomes our prayers, a God who is our Father. That pattern of Jesus' intimacy with the Father is, is, is something that's extended to us. And we now have that because of what Jesus has accomplished. We pray to God. We pray for the church. Amen? Are you praying for one another? Are you crying out to God for one another? We pray for the work of redemption in the work of sanctification, in the work of restoration in the church. 
And we pray for the glory of God to be known on the earth. That's what we try to pattern our prayer off on Wednesday nights when we meet together, is, is to pray for the world globally, locally, and within our church. And all of it's centered on the fact that we want to make the glory of God known. So it shows us how we should pray, but it also shows us that we should pray. And that's the main point I want to finish with. One of the fruits, I think, of hyper-Calvinism is this idea that there's kind of this mysterious lack of prayer within those who kind of fall into that category. You know, so this is what it comes down to. Well, if God's already done all the work, then our prayer really doesn't matter. That's... That would be to deny so much of what we find in Scripture and even Jesus' own pattern of life. So we want to avoid that kind of hyper-Calvinistic prayer, like prayer somehow doesn't matter because God's already made and fixed things in order. No, prayer plays a vital part in the life of the church because it is God's people communing with their God. The church should pray. Jesus commanded that the church pray. He modeled how the church should pray. He gifted us this, this gift to pray so that we might have rich communion with, God or, with, with the Father God in heaven until he returns. So to return back to my opening thought, a prayerless church is a missionless church. If Jesus found it necessary for him to pray for the, to his father on the eve of the hour in which he was appointed, you and I would do well to attend to prayer in our own lives and as a church. We would. In the same way that a boat is guided by the rudder, and if it doesn't have that rudder, as James says, what happens? If it kind of comes, does, it has no direction, right? It can't, it can't find direction. It's kind of, it goes wherever the waves send it and wherever the wind sends it, right? Without that rudder, you can't go any direction without that steering you. Well, the same thing is true about the role of prayer in the church. Like God gives us this prayer so that we might have that rudder constantly directing us towards the mission of God and being part of the mission of God. Otherwise, we will find ourselves being like a lot of churches today with no direction. No sense of allness about where, who we are and what we're here to do. Our next prayer gathering is April 6th. I hope that we find that to be something that we just, not out of some guilt and shame, but just out of a burden to say we want to participate in the mission of God. And the first place we can do that is through prayer as God's people. If we take this prayer to heart, as I said earlier, it is impossible that we will not be stirred, convicted about prayer in our own lives and a concern for prayer in our church. Amen? I hope that you'll pick up this little God as you leave. There should be enough for one per family. And I hope it'll stir your affections to the role of prayer in your life. Let's pray.